You may be seated. You beat me to it. Good morning, church. About three years ago, the responsibility of overseeing the youth of this church was added to my job description. I wanted to find a way for me to get to know the youth, the youth to get to know me, help them, and the youth to get to know each other. So we added hangouts to the calendar. Hangouts, our youth hangouts are, well, hangouts. It's a self-descriptive name. Youth show up, we play basketball, talk about life, sometimes eat Cheetos. We do young people stuff. I remember our first rooted hangout vividly. It was a Tuesday afternoon. Now the hangout itself, if I'm honest, really wasn't anything special. What is burned into my brain was that I was 15 minutes late. Why was I, who had left early for this hangout, late, and 15 minutes late at that? If you frequently drive on 25th, you are familiar with the railroad crossing. It was on this particular Tuesday, as I had left early and was on my way to the church, so close, I saw the gates go down. And I saw the train start to roll and I saw the front of the train, but I did not see its end. And it was to my horror that I watched the train begin to slow down and eventually come to a complete stop on the tracks. It'll move, right? Right? I said as I sat there, cars piling up behind me. I was trapped. And as I pulled into the church 15 minutes late, I can recall my reflection on my feelings at that moment. Have you ever felt helpless? It's a strange combination of vulnerability and anxiety and weakness smushed together. Maybe you've been stuck in traffic on the way to a time-sensitive meeting. Finish checking out at the grocery store only to realize you don't know where your wallet or purse is. Perhaps you felt helpless in a more serious or somber moment. There have been times I've sat in waiting rooms expecting horrible news, but left with nothing except time. Whatever degree we experience it, there is something deeply humbling about feeling helpless. It's this feeling that we find David in the midst of, overwhelmed by in Psalm 38 and 41. We find David in a state of helplessness in our Psalms of study today, swarmed by his enemies, struck by illness and stricken with grief. Psalm 38 and 41 have much in common. Both authored by David, king of Israel. We find David in both Psalms at a place of weakness and sorrow, fearful for his life, humbled by his sin and abandoned as his suffering is celebrated 
by his enemies. The tone of these two texts is undoubtedly somber. It's undoubtedly somber, mournful, desperate. Instead of meeting David in the wake of his deliverance, as we've done before, we find him in the midst of suffering. In our text today, we shall be confronted by the reality of sin, the humbling state of helplessness, the deliverance of God in the means by which we may be delivered. When read together, Psalm 38 and 41 recount this, the Lord's rescue of the poor in spirit. The Lord's rescue of the poor in spirit. To start our study, we find ourselves first diving into Psalm 38. Psalm 38 falls into a category of psalms called the penitential psalms. This is a title given to the psalms that serve as both personal and corporate prayers of confession and repentance for sin. Psalm 38 is a psalm that will deal with confession and repentance for sin. With this in mind, we should expect Psalm 38 to deal not only with confession and repentance, but also the burden of sin on the follower of the Lord. This burden makes up our first point, the weight and wages of sin. The weight and wages of sin. Though we find this idea present in both Psalm 38 and 41, it's more in focused, more in focus in the first of our two Psalms. If you will, open with me to Psalm 38. Let's read along, starting in verse 1 and ending in verse 8. Psalm 38. O Lord, Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. In Psalm 41.4, David offers the same cry in a more concise statement. Writing, as for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. In comparing Psalm 38 and 41, we find the psalmist in a similar, if not the same, situation. David is sick and dying, something he believes is a result of sin in his life. 
The Lord's arrows in hand have struck David. He writes himself that he is sick because of the Lord's indignation. We're not sure what circumstance or action David has in mind as he articulates the association between his illness and his sin. What we can be sure of is that David sinned. David sinned and that David is very ill. Whatever this illness was, David senses the nearness of death, as does his enemies. We find their plans to strike while he is weakened in Psalm 38 and their hopes for his nearing demise in Psalm 41. For the present moment, our focus is not on his enemies. Instead, we look to their observations. David very well could be nearing his final hour. As we ponder David's words, we find a difficult question stir in us. Do bad things happen to, the bad things that happen to us, do they correlate? Do they correlate to the specific sins that we've committed? The disciples seem to have such an understanding or thought they did of sin. We look in John 9, where we read the following as He, Jesus, passed by. He saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Though David seems certain of a connection between his sin and sickness, Scripture suggests that there is not always a clear, comprehensible connection between sin and what happens in our life. The book of Job serves as a great example of this. However, there are times where there is a clear connection between sin and repercussions. These are most often and easily observed in what I would call natural consequences. If we sin against someone, we should not be shocked if that relationship is harmed. That's a natural consequence. We also see that there are things in this world that are a result that exist because of sin's presence. Disease, natural disasters, famine, all are results of the fall. Humanity's rebellion against the Lord. We as humans are forced to deal with them because we brought them about in claiming we could rule over the Lord. But of all these things, natural consequences, the consequences of sin and evil in this world, the greatest consequence of sin is death. The greatest consequence of sin is death. Sin and death are not coincidentally connected. We find their connection first in Genesis 2, 16 through 17. The text reads, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Our clearest scriptural connection, though, I believe, is found in Romans. 
for the wages of sin is death. If it wasn't clear enough in Genesis, Paul clarifies it in Romans. The wages of sin is death. Humanity, church, has both earned death through their sin and is dead because of their sin. When we speak of death, we often mean a physical one, our bodies failing. However, Paul in Ephesians describes all humanity as presently dead. Presently dead. When we speak of death, we must consider it in the context of the Lord as life. And if this is the case, then spiritual death is separation from the Lord. And it's the thought of this separation that leads to David writing, I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. David is not just ill. He is stricken because of his sin, because sin is grievous. In considering our text, note that David does not defend himself. He doesn't defend himself. He knows the wages of his sin. This truth crushes David because David knows God is life and sin is death. And if left to himself, David would surely be dead and would surely die. That David was dead and would surely die. Christians exist in a strange balance on this world. One of freedom from sin, yet the need for continual repentance from it. The antinomian gospel, one that claims that we should go on sinning, that grace may abound, tells its adherents that the Christian can do whatever he or she pleases, for the blood of Christ can atone for it. Do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Jesus was enough. Paul offers a, what I would call, orthodox perspective on such a proposition in Romans again. Paul writes, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? If the Christian is to grow more into Christ's likeness, then we should grow in our hatred of sin, not our love of it. God hates sin. Do you? Do you despise sin? At its essence, sin stands in direct opposition to who the Lord is. Yet do we find our rebellion easy to excuse when it benefits us? Do we give it allowance when no one is watching? Do we tolerate certain sins because we believe that they aren't as bad? In blindness, we think we can simply categorize sin by what we do, yet the problem is that sin has pervasively saturated our being. It's not an issue of what we do 
but an issue of the posture of our hearts, of who we are apart from God. So here we find not only David, but humanity crushed under the weight and wages of sin. We cannot ignore the truth. Instead, we must face it, church. Sin is death. And by our own efforts, we are unable to free ourselves from its power. This sinful nature in humanity writhes at the possibility that we are enslaved to something. How ironic. Yet we are, and humanity has spent its time outside of the garden attempting to produce salvation for itself apart from the Lord. We are horrified of the fact that we are helpless, yet it is only in realizing our desperation that we can experience deliverance from our depravity. We cannot save ourselves, and so stands our second point, total helplessness before God total helplessness before God. In the state of helplessness is where we find David in these Psalms. He has acknowledged sin and its consequence. But if illness were not enough, we find David isolated from his friends and family, betrayed by those he considered close, and slandered by his enemies. Looking to Psalm 41 Five through nine, we can read. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. David, the mighty king of Israel, the powerful warrior and hero of his people, finds himself weak, betrayed, and alone. Those he thought to be his friends have even turned against him to do him harm. Psalm 38, verses 9 through 20, further describe David's feelings. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all the day long. But I am like a deaf man I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. 
and many are those who hate me wrongfully, those who render me evil for good. Accuse me because I follow after good. David's enemies quite simply hope for his death. And from what we can tell, it seems as if what they hope for will come true. He is repentant, sorry for his sin and accepting of its consequences. Yet the enemies of David do not relent in their attempts to harm him. We discovered that these enemies are not followers of the Lord, but those whose hearts are filled with iniquity and who hate what is good. In fact, these foes of David seek to do him harm because of David's association with the Lord, the source of goodness. Yet David refuses to respond to them. Instead, David cries out to the Lord. We see this cry addressed in the third person in Psalm 41, verses one through three. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. This short section of Psalm 41 has much to unpack. First, we must observe that the desire of the wicked is in contrast to the work done by God. David on his sickbed prays that the Lord would restore him to full health. The wicked hope that David's illness leads to his death. In describing those blessed by God, we find the comment that the Lord does not give his people up to the will of the wicked. Do you see David's argument? Lord, restore me. The wicked wish for my death. You restore your people. We see that for the Lord to raise David up in grace would even be permission for David to repay his enemies for their deceit and malice. This is imprecatory. David is praying for the destruction of the wicked, their end. Yet this is only possible if David is saved. In his present state, it will be him who perishes. In David's present state, it will be him who perishes. David refuses to act against his enemies unless the Lord heals him. David gives no answer to their slander and cruel words. Instead, we see that David asks the Lord to answer them. David asks the Lord to answer. In asking for God to heal him and not surrender him to his enemies, David is grouping himself into the category of those who consider the poor. Scholars actually find this statement in verse one a bit tricky. David, in writing this, means something. What is it? Does David mean that those who think about the financially destitute are blessed? Is this a statement about considering the financially poor? I'm convinced there's more here. 
we find an essential interpretive piece to understanding what David is saying, buried in some fairly confusing language in both the English and the Hebrew. Specifically, drawing it out with some biblical theology to help strengthen the case. I would say an alternative way to understand the first line of verse one is, blessed is the one who meditates what it is to be poor or weak. Again, blessed is the one who meditates what it is to be poor or weak. If you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, you'll be familiar with Christ's opening statement, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The words of David and Christ are not coincidentally similar They are providentially similar. Blessed is the one who knows what it means to be poor in spirit, church. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. To be poor in spirit is to know we cannot spiritually provide for ourselves. We have nothing good. And without someone intervening on our behalf, we are doomed to persist in our state of death. The poor in spirit are the spiritually helpless and those who realize it. For David, this concept was situationally relevant. If the Lord did not intervene, David would die of his illness. There was nothing David could do but cry out to God for only God could restore his life. Twice in Psalm 41, we find David ask the Lord to be gracious to him. Why appeal to unmerited favor, undeserved blessing? It's because David does not deserve to be saved. Brothers and sisters, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot rescue ourselves from death. We must face the fact that the chains binding sinners to death cannot be loosed by our own efforts as hard as we may try to prove otherwise. Our works to bring about our salvation, our rags, failed attempts to demonstrate our deity that only prove our arrogance and fallen nature. And when they collapse, too often we try to rebuild our paper towers. Instead, we must bow our hearts in weakness in our helplessness. We are helpless. And our only hope is to cry out to the God who created us and pray that he saves us, not just from this world and its present powers, but from ourselves. Not because we deserve it, but because God is gracious because God is gracious. We exist in a state of total helplessness before God. Helplessness, church, is a severe state and certainly one of neediness. If you haven't noticed, these Psalms are desperate cries. David is not coming to the Lord worthy of his rescue or praise. We find him in a spot of brokenness and sorrow, the light in his eyes fading 
in the weight of his sin, crushing his soul. And the Lord delivers David in the midst of it. This is our third point. God delivers us in the midst of our brokenness. God delivers us in the midst of our brokenness. In Psalm 41, after considering his illness and abandonment, we find David writing this. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Commentators debate on if the psalmist means to offer closure with these verses. Is David reflecting on hope for what will happen or on joy for what God has done? In either case, we have the gift of hindsight, which reveals that the Lord delighted in David and that his enemies did not triumph over him. David can say that the Lord delights in him, for David is the Lord's. This truth offers answers to the end of Psalm 38. The Lord has not forsaken David. The Lord has not gone far from David. The Lord has made haste to rescue David. The Lord is David's salvation. The Lord is David's salvation. As we've seen in Psalms before, David's hope for deliverance is not merely an earthly one, but one of eternal hope. Because of his integrity, the Lord has upheld David and set him in his, the Lord's, presence forever. We must remind ourselves that David's integrity is not a statement of perfection or worthiness. It's a statement of a faithful and repentant heart. Dare we say, poorness in spirit. What is a faithful and repentant heart, church? One that clings to God that loves the ways of the Lord, that turns away from sin and that confesses it is prone to wander and relies on God for its hope and salvation. Such a heart is one of the clearest signs of a Christ follower on this earth. David delivered from his illness, his sins and his enemies finds resolution what does the Lord deliver us from? Scripture tells us that we are delivered from the flesh and its fallen desires. We're delivered from spiritual darkness, Satan and his demons who deceived us into believing good is evil and evil is good. We're delivered from the world, the things we hope can save us that inevitably crumble to dust. We're delivered from God's wrath, the consequence of our rebellion and sin that we rightfully deserve. We are delivered from death, both spiritual death that separates us from the Lord and physical death 
from which all the Lord's people will one day rise from to join the Lord in his restored kingdom for all eternity. So then who does God deliver? Church, the Lord delivers those who were dead in their trespasses and sin, children of wrath. And it is by his mercy and grace that we may now call ourselves children of God. For we have been brought out of our condemnation and into new life. God does not wait to deliver us until we tidy up our lives and figure it out. God has not offered us a bar of supposed good works to achieve before we are brought into his presence. Instead, we find hope in the Lord in moments where we realize our works have amounted to nothing and our supposed self-achieved righteousness is fraudulent at best. God looks upon us in our helplessness and delivers us in the midst of it. There's no re- there is a reason church, that we call it being saved. It's called being saved. Salvation is not for people who think they can make a strong case for their own righteousness, but for those who are brought low in the universal truth that we might only be called righteous if made so by the Lord. Consider the following interaction between Christ and the Pharisees. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his, Christ's disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Is Jesus here saying that the Pharisees have achieved this righteousness? They have it all put together. Christ actually helps us in answering this question as he further explains this idea in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. We read that two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In these analogies, we see the heart of the Christian and of Christ revealed. God is not looking for us to lie to him and pretend that we are sinless, for we are not. He calls those whose souls are weary and burdened 
Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, says the Lord. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How do you approach the Lord? Do you appeal to him with your works in hopes that he might in turn offer you blessings? Do you adorn your soul in trinket works that only you find value in? Are you desperate and needy, church? Realizing your certain doom if left to your own devices and efforts. May we be spiritually poor aware of our spiritual helplessness and therefore grateful for God's perfect deliverance. And as we ponder this, we must also realize what God delivers us into. There are some that would tell you God gives us health and wealth. They hope to make this earth their heaven, a heaven in their own image. I fear these people do not know the God of the Bible. In considering many of Christ's remarks, to be saved by God is to be brought into animosity with this world. The early church was persecuted for its beliefs, and persecution for submission to the Christian God is not a relic of the past. How could it be worth it? For the Christian, death is now an odd thing. From what used to be a physical marker of our spiritual demise is now a door opening to the presence of the Lord. He delivers us, church, to himself. God delivers us to himself. One day it will be into his presence. For today, the Lord has delivered the Holy Spirit into his people that we may know that God will see our deliverance through to completion. As we've seen, David considers himself to be abandoned, his friends and family at a distance, and even some close to him betraying him. Our God does not abandon us. Our God does not abandon us. He does not turn away from us in our times of weakness and sorrow. Instead, he offers us comfort, peace, and hope to endure all things. God delights in his people. He delights in us. And he will not let our enemies of sin and death conquer us, church. As we're now well aware, the Psalms are saturated with the gospel. When we read through the New Testament, we could say Christ and its authors are familiar with the Psalms. I would actually say that the Psalms are familiar with Christ. Our two Psalms, 38 and 41, find connection with the last chapters of the Gospels, spanning from the Last Supper to the death of Christ. 38 and 41 point to the suffering, the crucifixion, and the death of Christ. Our final point is an acknowledgement of this. God delivers us through Christ Jesus. 
God delivers us through Christ Jesus. To understand these psalms is only, merely speaking of David and our state of helplessness is to ignore their use in the New Testament. There's a lot. Let's consider some of our clearest references and connections. The Pharisees, in hoping to trap Christ with their words, fulfill Psalm 38:12. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. We see Christ reference Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. This is referenced at the Last Supper, describing Judas as the one who ate Christ's bread and lifted his heel against him. We discover Psalm 38.11, my friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stand far off, is referenced in Luke 23 where we find Christ's family and followers at a distance from the cross, watching. Peter references Psalm 38, 13 through 14, which reads, but I am like a deaf man I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I've become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. Peter references this when he writes, When he, Christ, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What of Psalm 41, 11 through 12? By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. These two verses describe Christ's resurrection and ascension. David offers us an introduction to the perfection of Christ. It's an introduction to the perfection of Christ who was made low for our sake who was despised and rejected by those he came to save, tortured despite doing no wrong, who made our sins his own and suffered greatly for them. It is from the riches of Christ that we, the poor in spirit, are provided for. Christ provides for us. The Lord provides for the poor in spirit. He has given us a sacrifice that we may be forgiven for our sins. He has given us a place in his kingdom, a hope for tomorrow, a peace that surpasses all understanding and life eternal. What can we provide for ourselves? God has provided. Our cries to God for deliverance and confessions of sin are paired, church, with praise. Like the tax collector who stands at a distance and cries out, so must we cry to the Lord. Do not grow proud, but remember that we are no less saved by Christ today than yesterday. Every hour, 
Church, we need him. Churches, I needed the Lord yesterday, so I need him now. And though I stand rescued, I cannot grow complacent in my sin. So still I cry out to God that I need him, knowing he hears me and answers my prayer with the peace only the work of Christ can provide. Just as much as the day you confessed Christ as Lord, so you need him today. For without him, we would remain in our spiritual poverty and death. We are delivered from the wages of sin, yet we still cry out to the Lord, for we know his answer. We know the Lord's answer. And so our cries for mercy and grace are followed by worship of the Savior who has delivered us, the poor in spirit. Yet with all of this being said, still there is one more verse at the end of Psalm 41. A break from the flow of the rest of the poem. We find a doxology, a single verse of praise that closes out not just this psalm, but the first book of Psalms. It reads, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, spoke this at the birth of his son. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Zechariah opens up his prophetic praise by quoting Psalm 41, 13. Again, this is not a mere coincidence. This is providential, God at work. The Lord has visited us. He has saved us from the hand of sin. He has shown mercy and remembered his covenant that we now may serve him without the fear of death. This prophetic statement is an answer to Psalm 41. We find our answer in Christ, which is who this prophecy speaks of. Our praise, church, will be everlasting, echoing between the measureless walls of eternity. The prayer of Zechariah is our answer. Christ is our deliverance. Blessed be the Lord. God has given us his son, church, so that we may live. So how then shall we live? 
we must live as people deeply aware of our spiritual poverty. Still, we need him today. When we live aware of our need of God, our helplessness, our eyes are open to the riches of God's mercy. Our works are not what God has asked for. He has provided. If we are to bring something before God, let it be our neediness, our helplessness, our state of despair, and then our praise. He is the God who saves, the God who provides, the God who delivers the poor in spirit. Will you pray with me? Our gracious and just Father, Lord, how we need you. Father, we're helpless and we are desperate for you. Apart from you, Lord, we have nothing that can save us. Only you can save us. Father, give us repentant hearts, hearts that despise sin and love you. We thank you, Lord, that you have loved us first, that you are gracious and merciful, and it is by your grace that we may call ourselves your people. You have delivered us. We thank you for your son. His work, Lord, has brought us to you. We bow down to you, our true king. Lord, as we look to scripture, we cannot help but see Christ in every page. Lord, we see you keep your promises. In you we trust that you will deliver us into eternal life. Give us the hope that surpasses all understanding that you have seen our neediness and have provided what we could not. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray these things. Amen.